Welcome to the Circular Plastic Podcast, a podcast where we take a deep dive into the field of plastics recycling. Today, I am joined by Professor Edward Kozior, Managing Director of Nextec Limited and Nextloop. Edward will take us through the details of the Nextloop project, which aims at creating a circular pathway for polypropylene via mechanical recycling. We will cover the history of mechanical recycling, the breakthrough methods for sorting and decontamination of polypropylene in order to recycle it back to food-grade applications, and much more. Well, welcome everyone. Today, I have with me a, a veteran of plastics recycling industry, Professor Edward Kosior. And um, I would like to invite you, Edward, to introduce yourself. And uh, once again, welcome. And I'm very happy to be sharing this conversation with you. Thank you, Melissa. Yes, my name is Edward Kosior. I'm the Managing Director of Nextec Limited and also Nextloop. And I've had a role as an academic for 22 years as a professor in a university teaching polymer engineering. And for the last 25 years, I've been involved in the plastics recycling sector, typically as a technology company developing new technologies and designing plastics recycling plants. Thank you very much. I think one of those projects that I encountered, and actually, well, I think that's how our paths crossed within this space was the next loop project. I wanted to hear basically a little bit more about that, but very happy to hear about any other initiatives within this space that Nextec is doing. Yes, the next loop project is a very interesting one because it grew out of the time when we had the COVID epidemic and um, everybody was largely immobilized. And it was also a time when the pressure was on many companies to increase the level of recycled plastics into their packaging. And polypropylene is extremely widely used in the food packaging area. As a packaging material, it's used as frequently as PET. So it's a very major polymer on the supermarket shelf, and yet it's only recycled at very low rates and not back into food grade. So about 10 years earlier, we had developed the know-how of how to decontaminate polypropylene back to food grade. And our next step after the decontamination process was to actually develop a technique for separating polypropylene packaging in separating food packaging from non-food packaging. Now, this was a, an important point for food grade compliance. So that work continued up until around about 2016, 2017. And in the time in between, we kept on designing new recycling plants. But one of the things we found frequently was companies were coming to us and asking us, can we make food grade recycled polypropylene? And out of that intense demand, we developed the project called Nextloop. And the concept was that we would demonstrate that post-consumer polypropylene could be recycled back to food grade quality. And we knew that in the process, we had to solve a number of problems and also develop some tasks that were necessary for food grade accreditation. And so we put forward the concept to many companies and uh, the project now has 48 companies in the project. And the concept of Nextloop is about companies from the supply chain participating to create a circular pathway for polypropylene. So we have 
virgin resin companies, we have brand owners, we have the converters that make the packaging, we have technology suppliers that either extrude materials or mould materials, also supply labels, the sorting technology, the washing technology. We have innovation organisations, we have universities and industry associations. So a broad spectrum of organisations all wanting to see a pathway for food-grade polypropylene. So that project was started in 2020 and we're now into its third year. So it's been growing very successfully and I can give a bit of a summary about the project as well, if you like, Melissa. No, I would be very happy to, but maybe actually let's take a step back because I recall now that we actually did meet even in the PT world. So uh, that was maybe five, six years back when you were presenting a lot about recycled PT. And I think obviously mechanical recycling is, is state of the art in the recycling, plastics recycling industry. And now chemical recycling coming as another um, option within the recycling, let's say, suite of uh, technology opportunities. I just wanted to hear a little bit on your reflections on, for example, the improvements on the quality of the products for mechanical recycling. And I think maybe before we dive into to the products itself, I think our listeners would be very interested in hearing that. What is it about the food grade that is, you know, hard to achieve? And then also why polypropylene? Because I think there have already been some significant steps, let's say advancements in PE and PT mechanical recycling. We know that PT does close the loop recycling for the beverages. So maybe this is the next logical step, but can you kind of take us through that journey maybe so that the listeners could also learn a little bit more about mechanical recycling and, and its history? So recycling really recycling of packaging started very much from the recycling of paper and cardboard which was a material collected for a long time because of the the value of that material and the next things that were collected along with paper were glass bottles and when we started to get plastic bottles introduced the plastic bottles were starting to be collected along with the paper and the glass So PET was the logical thing that was the beginning of recycling because it was a replacement for glass bottles and it grew very quickly and the bottles were single use, produced in large quantities and so they were destined for recycling. As it turns out, PET is an amazing material. It's chemically very stable. You can do many things in the recycling of the plastic such as you can actually build molecular weight during the recycling process So you can restore it back to its original condition and it's also capable of being processed at very high temperatures, which means the decontamination steps can happen fairly quickly. So it lent itself to the recycling process very nicely. There are some limitations as well for PET, but I won't go into them as well and not just yet. But the concept of making plastics recycled uh, into a circular pathway was established by PET and then the other material that came alongside was high density polyethylene or or polyethylene and the big volume that was going to be recycled was milk bottles back to milk bottles. Now conventional recycling of high density polyethylene has been going on for some time and it had a number of limitations. First of all conventional materials are used for things like shampoos, detergents, 
and non-food materials as well, and they are excluded from being recycled back to food grade. So typically they go into non-food applications such as, in the case of high-density polyethylene, the pipe sector, a lot of drainage pipe is made from those materials. And even though we can decontaminate those non-food materials, they're not permitted to go back into the food grade stream. And the reason we focused on the food grade stream was to give recyclers, first of all, a high value product, which would encourage investment in recycling technologies. And that would then encourage the recovery of all materials. So the area of polyethylene recycling was developed in the United Kingdom for milk bottle recycling back to milk bottles. And that's been going for quite some time. And I'll talk a bit about the difficulties and the challenges of achieving that in a moment. And so why polypropylene? If you look at the range of packaging on the market, we had PET bottles, we had HDPE bottles or the milk bottles and the other detergent bottles. But there was a big fraction of plastics in the post-consumer stream that was untouched. And they were what we call the pots, the tubs and the trays. And they were mainly made up of both PET and polypropylene. And polypropylene, as I mentioned earlier, is a big volume material. And a lot of that material is going to landfill. So in an attempt to reduce plastic waste to landfill, there were many attempts to recycle that polypropylene. And once polypropylene was being collected and sorted, the recycling rate for polypropylene went up. However, there seemed to be little incentive to actually draw more polypropylene out of the waste stream. And so we did the research on how to achieve a food-grade material. Now, to achieve a food-grade material, you have to be able to have a very powerful decontamination process. And it was one of our areas of technical work of working out what type of process was needed for the decontamination of polypropylene back to food-grade status. And we found out that we needed a double-step decontamination process to achieve the sort of goals. Now, in order to get there, we had to comply with the European Food Safety Authority standards, and they specify that you can only use food packaging to make recycled food-grade food contact materials. So that represents a challenge because the normal sorting processes in recycling centres use near-infrared spectroscopy to separate one polymer from another. So we can separate polypropylene from high-density polyethylene, from PET, from anything else. We can do that very quickly, very automatically. But the machines cannot tell the difference between a bleach bottle and a milk bottle or a tray that's been used for fruit and vegetables or a box that's been used for detergent. So we needed some extra technology in order to take the next step. So we embarked on a program of developing a separation technology based on fluorescent markers. So these markers are put onto a label and these markers change color under ultraviolet light. So what we've done is develop a sorting machine which has an ultraviolet light inside the box. And when the package goes through, the label changes color and the detection system in the sorting machine will actually see the color. It'll analyze the uh, wavelength of the color and tick that it's been identified and separated out. 
So we had then the basis for the separation of one type of material with a unique signature from the rest of the packaging. So in this way, we could separate food from non-food. Basically, you're talking about the pristine and the polyprism technologies, right? Where you have the sorting done through the polyprism and then you have the two-step decontamination via pristine. I wanted to ask maybe a, a little bit about the markers, like at what point in the process of production of, of a plastic product do you actually put them? And also maybe how much of these interactions with the value chain, and you all clearly have the representation of everyone in the value chain, in the product. Were there any considerations in terms of different barriers for putting things or doing things differently? So the basis of the technologies are we have the polyprism technology for the separation steps and we have the pristine technology for the decontamination. When we developed the concept, we had one thing in mind and that was that we need to integrate with the existing recycling infrastructure. We didn't want companies to have to build brand new machines, which they were currently using. So we designed a concept of putting the marker on the label. And the reason is that we can separate the label from the container and then have the plastic left in a very clean state without any residues on it. And what it entails is to make the marker, we just simply add an extra layer of ink or we put the fluorescent marker into what's called the varnish that goes onto the label. So most labels have a finished varnish on the surface and we can put the marker into the varnish and we end up with a label that will fluoresce during sorting. So there we needed the cooperation of the brand owners to put this into their label. So we do have brand owners and companies that are agreeable to do that. So it's the start of the separation process. I was just wondering maybe a little bit about the scale of the machine. How does it scale and what about the speed? How does it compare to what we know today of the what state of the art when it comes to sorting? Yeah, so the process operates at the full speed of the current sorting machine. So we're not slowing the machine down by asking it to recognize anything new. So all we're using is ultraviolet light as the source of excitation. And then we have to have the fluorescent mark on a label. So the existing cameras see the flash of light from the label and they can recognize it and then they can eject it at the same speed. So all of our trials and tests are done at the speeds of two and a half to three meters per second. And we are running at loading rates of two tons per hour per meter with the belt. So full capacity of the machine is utilized and no slowing down. And when we measure the performance of food to non-food separation, we've demonstrated that we can get greater than 99% uh, food materials separated from the non-food area in one step. So we can go to 99.9 in two steps. So what about if you have a mix of different plastics, let's say layers inside a product, how does that work? So basically our system will separate out whichever container has a marker on it. So if it has a marker which says this is food grade, we can separate it out. And our target would be to separate out the food grade materials. If a material, let's say a polypropylene package, has multi-layers, we have to make a decision. Do we want that in the food grade stream or not? Now, as it turns out, in polypropylene, we do not have many 
barrier layer materials. There are some in trays, but we can make a decision based on the, the barrier layer. So if it's EVOH barrier, we can give it a tick and include it. If it has, let's say, a PET barrier or a nylon barrier, we may decide not to give it a tick and not to put it in because it will reduce the quality of the recovered material. So it, it's a choice. And, and of course, in this way, we can actually be very, very effective in controlling the product we select. Yes. And I guess that's done to the collaboration with the formulators to be able to design those products more suitable for recycling and uh, more monomaterial packaging to be put on the market. So once you have this uh, food grade polypropylene stream sorted and split from non-food grade polypropylene, then I guess the next step is the decontamination. So how does that look? So the first part of the process is quite conventional. So we have to, first of all, separate out any non-plastic materials such as paper or glass or wood and so on. So that's a fairly normal process of we recheck the material for composition, so make sure it's all polypropylene. We then put it through a size reduction process, so it's usually wet granulation, so what grinding underwater, which actually starts the cleaning process. And then we put it through a sink float process where we can separate any residual metals and materials. And then we put it through a hot wash process. And now in the hot wash, we get rid of things like the labels and adhesives. They're removed in that area. And we also have a very high performance wash where we can even remove inks from the uh, surface of the material. So we actually could take this a long way. And that helps prepare the material for the next step where we undertaking molecular decontamination. So we have two steps of decontamination. One is during extrusion, where we have a long residence time at high temperatures, typically 240 Celsius. And that helps us exclude lots of volatile materials under vacuum in that melting step. And that then extracts quite a wide range of materials, the very high rates. And we follow that, that up uh, later in the solid state where we take the granulated materials and we expose it to high temperatures for multiple numbers of hours. And we then can remove any residual materials that are left at tiny levels. So those two steps give us a very powerful decontamination process. Okay, so when we have this decontaminated stream, how is it then sort of put on the market for, for food applications? What are the demands from, let's say, the off-takers? And I was also, I read some about the inner grade polypropylene. I understand that comes from, uh, let's say, the rejected stream. How does its quality and, and market perspective look? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. So when we make the food grade recycled material, we have three different grades based on color separation. So we have a natural grade without any pigments. We have a white grade and we have a grade made up of mixed colored material. So those materials will go back into applications such as extruded sheet and thermoformed into trays and also into pots and cups. And then we also have grades that are injection molded into a range of products, typically pots of various types. And 
those trials have been going extremely successfully and the brand owners who are making their products and putting them on the market are making many objects. So we're covering a very wide range of products from film to extruded trays and pots and injection molded tubs. So, and the demand for this is extremely large. I mean, we, we know what our membership in Nextloop uh, requires, and if we multiply that outside, it would be very, very significant across Europe, and it, it would be something of the order of a million tonnes a year for reaching the 25% recycle content. So we know that um, there are big markets for that part of it, but as you mentioned, when we separate the food packaging from the non-food, we are left with the non-food packaging. And of course, we don't always identify all the food packages completely. So we have a mix of food and non-food in, in the stream that we don't select. But we take that stream of polypropylene and decontaminate it through exactly the same process. And when we do that, the material looks chemically identical in terms of decontamination. So it's completely free of volatile materials and free of any molecules that migrate over time back into new formulations. And so in this area, these grades, we call them inert grades because of their non-migratory nature. They can be used for cosmetics because they won't migrate into formulations and they won't change the odor or the performance of those formulations. The inert grades can also be used for automotive applications where there is great concern over the odour that might come out of recycled plastics. So these inert-grade materials have very low VOC emissions and hence they're very suitable for for use in lots of consumer applications like uh, the interiors of cars. That's great. I mean, very good to hear that also this sort of the, you could call it the reject stream or let's say the, the stream at least that doesn't find its way back to food context materials also has such high value applications. Okay, back to the beginning. You said yourself, okay, the food grade material needs to come from food grade plastic waste. So it is due to the regulations that EFSA dictates and EFSA stands for uh, European Food Safety Authority. So just wondering how does the timeline and the process look when it comes to the approval of such a new product with EFSA? So the European Food Safety Authority has published a new regulation for Europe for plastics used in direct food contact. This regulation is called 1616-2022, and it spells out the procedures that you can use. So there are a large number of well-defined PET recycling processes that are already approved for use uh, across Europe. And indeed, recently, they've just published a list of the recycling companies that have such an approval. Any new processes, such as the next loop process, needs to be registered as a novel process. So next loop has registered as a novel technology provider with EFSA. And the procedure is that you have to supply information to validate that the materials you would make comply with the food safety standards. So you have to submit a good body of work supported by scientific information that the materials made will not migrate into food at levels that would cause concern for EFSA. 
The procedure then stipulates that you can put materials on the market with that correct declaration of compliance and you have to monitor the process closely for two years. So you need to monitor what's going into the process, the process control conditions, and also the outputs of the material. And these materials have to be accessible and available to EFSA. And after two years of collecting data, they can be submitted to EFSA for consideration for approval. EFSA have two years to go through their consideration process. So if they take two years, it could take then four years. And if there are any issues, they could take up to another three years for final approval. So the process could take at least two years and probably up to four and potentially up to seven years for final approval. It's a lengthy process and we would hope that this is going to be modified and trimmed down to make recycling approvals easier and faster to facilitate investment and bringing these things to market. Yes, well, I think the recycled content targets would, would be actually rather hard to reach without some tweaks and adaptations in uh, frameworks such as EFSA or like approval frameworks. This brings us to, you know, real life facilities operating these processes and producing products that go directly to the market. So what are the plans for next loop? I mean, essentially, what is your first project? What will be the scale? How does that look? So we have two organizations that have already put their hand up for the next loop process. One is Virador in the United Kingdom, and the other one is Hangiep in Malaysia. Uh, both of these companies are currently in the process of manufacturing our inert grade materials because we can actually make them right now because the separation process for food from non-food is not in place just yet. But the intention is to go down that track. And that does require additional investment. And we have to go through the normal sort of investment procedure processes for, for those companies because they involve significant new investment. We are also in discussions with other companies in other continents who are looking at this. This is outside of Europe and also inside of Europe. And we've also recently announced that we'll be setting up Next Loop Americas for the Canadian, North American, Mexican, South American region so that we can have the same activity planned in that area and manufacture materials to suit US FDA conditions. So that's another really quite strategic and important area because those two big markets, Europe and USA, do have the potential for collection and then for advanced recycling technologies like the ones that we require for the separation and the decontamination of the materials. So we see these areas as the markets for them. But as I mentioned, we already can supply commercial grades of inert grade resins. So we call them pristine inert grade polypropylene. And they are available for companies to test and trial and purchase on the commercial scale. Next will come the food grades, and we expect them to be coming out in the next 12 months. And they'll be available from the two locations. Very good. Congratulations on the expansion. I think it sounds like a very logical move. Of course, there's a need, and uh, it's a very large market also in the Americas. Any quick reflections maybe on the FDA versus EFSA? How does that look? And then maybe in connection to that, what about the life cycle assessment of such a product? What about the guidelines also in Europe versus the US? And are they 
in the first place clearly defined at all? Or is it mostly the brands maybe that drive the need that their product should have a better LCA than fossil? So let, let's talk briefly about FDA versus EFSA. FDA and EFSA have many elements in common. So they all require separation of food from non-food packaging. So you can only use food packaging to make recycled food-grade contact materials. That's quite clear. The way they do their testing and classifications are fundamentally different. EFSA make some very critical assumptions. Uh, for example, they assume that you have carcinogenic materials in every batch of recycled plastic, and then you have to demonstrate you can remove these to very low levels. It's an assumption that we would really like to see cross-checked with real data because those materials are banned from use in consumer packaging and that they inherently should not be there. But the approval processes both use a challenge test where you have to purposely contaminate a batch of material and put it through your process and demonstrate that the finished material is very, very clean and free from contaminants and also that if when you conduct migration studies, nothing harmful will migrate from the package into food at concentrations below particular levels. And this is where FDA and EFSA vary. They have different endpoints and they have also slightly different approaches to the decontamination test. But nonetheless, it can be done in both spheres. And we can probably say that FDA is much more direct and uh, simpler, uh, but doesn't mean it's any anything less stringent. Sure. It's safety or food as such very important. It, it is very important. And, uh, you know, we would imagine that in the US they protect the health of Americans just as EFSA protects the health of uh, <laughs> yes. Europeans. Probably many factors controlling the longevity of people in both sides. But just on the life cycle analysis of mechanical recycling compared to virgin plastics, we do see a very significant saving in the uh, energy in recycling, mechanical recycling materials, because if you take your polymer from the recycling stream, you do have already a big saving. It takes approximately two tonnes of CO2, or you have two tonnes of CO2 emissions for every tonne of virgin polypropylene made. But when you make recycled polypropylene, you have far less. And so we, we have savings of the order of 60% when we recycle polypropylene back to food grade conditions. So there are significant savings to make a recycled food grade PP. We also wanted to reflect on how is Europe and US different? And I think the big difference between those two countries is in the way in which materials are collected. So in the United States, landfill is very low cost. And so it could be of the order of um, 10 to 20 to $50 per tonne to, to landfill materials. Whereas in Europe, we have a landfill levy, and that figure could be anywhere from 120 to 150 euros per tonne. So there's a natural diversion in Europe that doesn't occur in the US. And so polypropylene is not widely collected in the US. Uh, in fact, the, the recycling rates are around 5%. So Europe has the material collected and available. So that's the first step of recycling, having the capacity to create the stream of material in large volumes. And that then really sets the stage for the recycling technologies to take place. And this is probably the one area where there is a significant difference between the US and, and Europe. 
just as you've shed some light on uh, the differences between US and Europe, I wanted to ask you about mechanical and chemical recycling. Obviously, mechanical recycling is the state of the art and uh, also getting all the time better, able to deliver impressive results such as what we discussed today. But chemical recycling is also sort of entering the recycling stage with some solutions. I know there's a company called also Pure Cycle Technologies, I believe, looking also at polypropylene via chemical recycling. How do you see, you know, the complementarity and the potential that these two solutions hold and the differences, obviously, between them? Yes, thank you. That's a very important question to discuss because chemical recycling is seen as, if you like, the opportunity to keep carbon based materials uh, in the cycle without having to go back to CO2. And um, indeed, there are a lot of initiatives now in developing ways of treating plastics. So we actually we can actually change the state from a plastic or a polymer back to smaller fragments. So there are two types. One is depolymerization, and that suits materials such as PET, nylons, and polyurethanes and maybe polystyrene and uh, polymethyl methacrylate. So that's depolymerization. But for the materials like polyethylene and polypropylene, you can't use that technique. When we heat these materials, we end up creating fragments of molecules, uh, and they can be used as a feedstock to the crackers and then the repolymerization process. The challenge we have with chemical recycling compared to mechanical recycling is the higher carbon footprint. And they typically have the same carbon footprint as making virgin plastics. And that's the challenge. So even though we keep the carbon in the cycle, there's a fairly heavy penalty to pay on CO2 emissions. So this is really an important point. So it basically says that where possible, we should recycle materials by mechanical recycling. And when we have complex mixtures, perhaps like the barrier materials, or materials that are so intensely mixed that we can't separate them, then perhaps they're the feedstocks for chemical recycling. And there's been, there've been some estimations that the ratio of mechanical to chemical recycling should be of the order of 60% mechanical, 40% chemical, and that would then treat the, the full stream of materials. But you mentioned Pure Cycle. Pure Cycle is a company in the United States that is a spin-off from Procter & Gamble Technology which uses a solvent-based process to recover polypropylene. And it's a very, very interesting because basically they dissolve the polypropylene materials into a solvent and they then clean the solution by filtration and then they re-precipitate the, the polypropylene at the end and um, then they recover the polypropylene. And this is a very promising technology, but the plant has to be very big because it's very expensive and in order to justify it, you need high throughputs. So the current plant that's being built has a capacity of 45,000 tonnes per annum, but the cost of the plant was initially quoted as 350 million US dollars. So it's a big operation with a high capital cost, and we are, I guess, waiting to see these materials put on the market. But very interesting, very promising, because it'll take compounded materials and turn them into clear non-pigmented version, so which is a big step forward. So a very interesting one to watch. And um, we know there's a new plant slated for Europe and plants slated for Asia as well. So a very interesting one, but very much a petrochemical style of operation with 
high temperatures, high pressures with the use of solvents. So it has to be very tightly controlled. Okay, but obviously, I guess in both cases, both next loop and then pure cycle, it sounds as uh, the market really is global and the movement is global. So there is this uh, expansion and the wish to, to reach all the markets, which is, I think, one of the messages today. I wanted to ask you um, maybe about the typical scale of the polyprism and, and pristine assets. How big would one plant be and how much does it need to adapt, let's say, plastic collection? So a typical next loop plant would be of the order of modules of 10,000 tons per annum. And we can go larger, of course, but we, we think typically in terms of 10,000 tons per annum because it allows the collection of materials from a local region. So any city with a, a population of, let's say, a million people could potentially have a food-grade PP recycling operation associated with it. So you wouldn't have to gather the material from very far. It can be gathered locally and um, you can capture the material and process it through the plant. And that's one of the big advantages of mechanical recycling. You can locate it in the region where the products are being manufactured and consumed and recycled. So you can have small units. You don't have to have a very large plant located in a petrochemical complex. So these plants can be, of course, 20,000 tonnes, which we think would be a good size for modern operations. And there may be multiple modules of the 10,000 tonnes per annum extruders and decontamination processes inside. And of course, the target is to create a loop for polypropylene packaging, which doesn't exist now, and to then integrate that back into the products that the brand owners are using. So We've put a lot of time and effort in conducting the trials back into brand owner products, and all of those trials have been very successful without any major issues or problems, and we've been uh, really pleased with the cooperation we're getting from all the participants. They're so keen to create a closed loop because they all have the same goal, and that is to create a more sustainable world with their products and their production, putting these materials onto the market to consumers who know what to do. And I think that's probably the next big step is to look at how do consumers respond and also how can we make packaging simpler and much more amenable to circular recycling. So this is a whole new era of recycling thinking, starting from design and then going all the way through to collection separation, sorting and then recycling back into the same types of products. And I think that's the new era that we call the circular economy. And so we need to adapt all of those stages to reach that circularity. Certainly, but I think this uh, project like this with so much interest, so many participants or members, and of course, a lot of great results is one of the first successes as well. So I think uh, it, was, it was very interesting conversation about uh, Nextloop in particular. Instead of the end or instead of maybe the conclusion on Nextloop, I just wanted to hear uh, more about Nextex activities. If there's anything else that you're doing within the plastics recycling space, anything else that you want to mention maybe as a teaser, because you said that also this technology was maybe 10 years or even more in the making. And then again, once you develop one thing, you realize, okay, I'm actually missing something leading to it, then I have to develop that. So is there anything new in the pipeline? How does it look? 
Well, we have two very interesting technologies, and the one that's, I think, captured a lot of attention has been our process called CO2 Clean, and this is technology that's applied to plastic film, so specifically polyethylene, polypropylene, and high-density polyethylene films, and there we have developed a technology for basically washing films or extracting films with supercritical carbon dioxide. So instead of using water as a washing medium for plastics, we're using a fluid state for carbon dioxide. That's what we call the supercritical state. So in this way, we can actually very powerfully extract and clean and decontaminate plastic films without using water. When we finish the cleaning process, we remove, have removed all odors. We've actually decontaminated the material. And we also are finding we can remove inks and also delaminate multi-layer film. So it's a very interesting, a very powerful process. So we're in the stages now of developing the design of the first plant. And this process, the CO2 clean process, has one acknowledgement from the Alliance to End Plastic Waste. So we won the competition for innovative technology to develop processes for reclaiming plastic films back into new films. So that's one very interesting area. And the other one is related to plastics, but it's the area of car tires. So we know that there are basically one car tire per person per year made for countries like all European countries. So if you take United Kingdom, there'd be something like 60 million tires made every year for most countries. So those products at end of life end up being shredded and most of them are burnt in cement kilns as a form of energy and very little recovery happening. So we now are working on a process to devulcanize rubber. So the rubber from tires can be reused back into many other products. It's one of those areas that's been traveling forward but hasn't made any great advances so we want to use some of our new technologies to uh, address that scenario and create a simple reliable high performance pathway for the rubber from car tires it's one of those missing elements that everyone takes for granted but uh, is it actually a very big disposal issue at the end of life great i hope that the you know good track record will just continue both within uh, co2 clean uh, technology and with the rubber end-of-life management. I'm keen to follow basically all of that and first and foremost, the next loop, uh, first project and the expansion to the Americas. I would like to thank you so much for uh, bringing very good insights and knowledge to the audience on uh, mechanical recycling and also a lot about PP and how uh, things actually work in practice because I think you've covered so well for us everything from putting the packaging onto the market to putting it back on recycled in the second chance for life and for use. So thank you so much, Edward. If you have any last remarks, happy to hear them. Otherwise, thanks so much for today. Well, thank you, Melissa. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my views and update on the technology. Melissa, that was a super interesting conversation with Edward Kosher. Also really enlightening with regards to the requirements for food-grade polypropylene. Yes, I think it was, uh, I mean, it's a breakthrough somehow, right? And then uh, Edward taking us through the whole process. What does it take? Uh, the consortium, how you have to have your value chain together, and also a little bit on the legislation headache. 
and the, the approvals, I think that was really interesting. Yes. And I think with the food grade, polypropylene and the requirements for it, I think it's so strong that they have collected this whole consortium of the entire value chain. Because I think what he told us about is that it also really, it's so important to have everybody there to adopt it. Yes, I agree. I think that's a very important thing. But again, it's not easy to do, right? So I don't know whether to uh, admire the idea of putting the value chain or actually doing it, right? Yeah, <laughs> in one project. that's true. So yes, I think it's a must somehow if you want to lift an initiative uh, of this complexity, because even though I think it's actually, it's a simple process, but it contains elements that are new and it requires mobilization from the very beginning of the value chain from like new plastic production, literally. So yes, I think that's a very good point, right? You need to bring this to the market and to bring this to the light of day somehow, something yeah. so new. Uh, you have to have the whole value chain in place working yes. together. And I also think it was very interesting hearing about this, how you label the different kinds of plastics. So you are labeling the label with a fluorescent marker so that you can distinguish between the different kinds of plastic yeah, or polypropylene. Yeah, yeah. I think it also, one of the points was also, it illustrates also that when you asked about what do you do with multi-layered bottles or containers. And then you actually have to decide and then you might have a layer that is food grade polypropylene, but you have another layer which is not. And then you need to sacrifice it. Yeah, I guess you have to reject somehow uh, that from from this process and, and put it into another stream. Right? Yes, and that, that really sparked me to, uh, to sort of draw a little diagram for my understanding. And, and if you're looking at all of the plastic that you're throwing away, how to recycle that. So Imagine that you have these labels with the fluorescent markers on the food grade polypropylene and then you have all the other stuff from your packaging and broken toys, I don't know. Then you start out with the mechanical recycling where you separate away all the food grade polypropylene. And then what do you do about the rest? You might have a process to separate some more plastic out for mechanical recycling and then you have a leftover product that you might not be able to mechanically recycle. So what do you do about that? And then I was thinking chemical recycling could be the answer and then lead it to a steam cracker and then create virgin plastics. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a very good point, right? That talks about the complementarity of the two ways of uh, recycling plastics. So you would, I guess, take this mechanical reject when you really hit the wall with mechanical recycling, you've tr put everything you could through it to get the right quality, then your steam cracker is, yeah. is the option. Because I think also if you look at it from a carbon emission point of view, it's probably better to mechanically recycle as much as you can. Because when you reach the steam cracker, you have quite a high energy consumption, right? Yeah. Sure. I mean, definitely very green process uh, that we see with mechanical recycling. This proceeds to a quote I actually wrote down from Edward is that the first step of recycling is to have the capacity to create a stream of material in large enough volumes. And I think if you think back on my little scheme or diagram of, of how to do this is that when you take out the food grade polypropylene, it might only be a fraction. So it's somehow a numbers game also. Yeah, I think it's a great pigmental actually, because you kind of thin it down, right? You get less and less. So yes. volume really is critical. 
And I guess that feeds back to where do you get your plastic? How is it today somehow collected and processed and what's its end of life? Yes. And this makes me think about the differences that, that Edward mentioned about EU versus US and, and the landfill, that it's much cheaper to landfill in the US. So yeah. only 5% of plastics is recycled in the US. And I seem to recall from the previous chat with Christoph Witte from McKinsey that it was around 30% uh, recycled in, in yes. Europe. And again, it, it's a matter of the pricing, right? Yeah, well, landfilling. I, I agree. But yeah, I mean, it's a matter of, of exactly like waste handling somehow and you have different different things in place and less culture maybe related to recycling as well. But okay, in that context of Europe versus the US, I also thought it was very interesting how Edward actually compared, let's say, the agility of the regulation or the approvals procedures between uh, European Food Safety Authority and FDA in the US. Yeah, yeah that was super interesting. So I must say, uh, as a consumer, I'm happy that the authorities take great care that the food-grade plastics that is surrounding my My food is not contaminated with all kinds of contaminants. Let's just keep it at that. But also that it takes between like the fastest was two years and the longest was seven years. Yeah, in Europe. In Europe. <laughs> that's uh, And if we're looking at how much we need to recycle mm -hmm. to lower the greenhouse gas emissions and everything, then I just get a little yeah. worried. It's a bit counterintuitive, I would say. Uh, yes. When it comes to getting these new technologies out there and being able to recycle yes, so I some think this, significant volumes. This again calls for some thoughts around how we do our legislation to both protect the consumers, but also drive the circular plastic. Yeah, drive the innovation right in the right way. I agree yes. with you. Yeah, But extremely interesting. And I think, again, this whole next loop underlines what we see in the energy transition is that you need partnerships. Oh, yes. It's a, it's a great example of that. I think it was uh, 48 partner companies, as yes. you said, throughout going across the whole value chain. Yes, so I'm looking forward to following that and maybe following up with Edward at a later stage to hear how it's going. Yeah, but uh, I was equally actually impressed with the project, the ambitions, and uh, it does seem like everything really is in place to, to achieve them. So looking forward to following and seeing what happens. Yeah, so do I. With these words, we wrap up this episode of the Circular Plastic Podcast. Thank you to Edward for taking the time to join us and revealing the world of recycling for food-grade polypropylene. I was really amazed to learn more about the Nextflow project and how it's paving the way for a circular pathway for polypropylene. And with no less than 48 companies from across the supply chain participating in the project, I'm sure we'll see some great results from it. Stay tuned for the next episode where we'll be covering chemical recycling with Professor Kevin Van Hem from University of Ghent at the Laboratory for Chemical Technology and the Director for the Center for Sustainable Chemistry. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, then please don't forget to share it with colleagues and friends.